Welcome to the Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find clinicians and researchers discussing cutting-edge research from the embodied relational sciences, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Hey, welcome back to Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to with a long footnote that is ever evolving just as we as human mammalian organisms are also evolving, uh-huh. we would like to invite you to read with us. And the gist of it is that we want you to read also. Yeah, yeah. Because our implicit desire of this podcast is not only that we would disseminate information to people who may not otherwise get it, But we also want to reframe the story around the information. Yes. To say that research is not a terrible, awful thing. Right. It's beautiful and is telling a story and worth digesting. And reshape that through invitation to connection around research. Yeah. Yeah. I, some of my colleagues, like outside of beyond, found out that I did this podcast here recently. Oh, okay. Which is just interesting. Like... (laughs) You know, it's not that I'm hiding it, but I'm not also like just telling every person, like, have you listened to my podcast? <laughs> like, that's not how yeah, I ever. Yeah, don't be that guy. That's not how I ever yeah. am. Yeah. So <laughs> people are surprised when they figure out that I do a podcast in one moment and then the next they're like, I guess that checks out. Oh, you're talking about research? That checks out. That checks out. What's the topic of the podcast? Uh, oh, research. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I did have a professor say, that's a lot of work. So good job. I said, thank you. I'm not sure what the point of that comment was, (laughs) but it's a lot of work. It is kind of like, you know, it's roughly an hour to an hour and a half of reading each week. Yeah, pretty light. For us, maybe. Oh, I'm sorry. That is so good. I see what you were saying. Yeah. Okay. I'm so sorry. I thought. Which, like, it depends on the article. Are we talking about Alan Chore's interpersonal neurobiology of intersubjectivity? You got to go back and forth. That 30 pages is going to take you a couple hours. Dense writing. Yeah. Not just 30 pages of, like, yeah. Yeah. Fluffy writing. Yeah. Yeah. But I really do think that in that conversation, it came through. Because there was such an interesting interaction that mm-hmm. formed when, because they said it on a public Zoom call, like it was with other people. And other people, once they heard the topic of the podcast, they had a range of interactions. Mm-hmm. Like one person was like, oh, that's interesting. Another one's like, oof, gosh, I don't know if I can listen to a whole hour of that, which is a PhD, which is interesting that they said that. But <laughs> uh, I think that over the course of that conversation, it really came to the center of what the podcast mission is, mm. which is to reshape through invitation to connection mm-hmm. our perspective of research. And, and maybe that would help our field as a whole um, understand the task at hand. Yeah. yeah. There's a, like one of the things we talk about in our trainings is there's a literal world of information like at our disposal in this like current moment where we have books, we have internet databases, we have, so many ways in which we could connect to not only mm-hmm. knowledge, like, and I put air quotes around that because not just cognitive knowledge, but lived experiential knowledge disseminated through written text and that that can help us make sense of our lives and the co- confusing dynamics that we face. Mm-hmm. I mean, as humans, let alone as therapists, which yeah. like therapy is just you signing up to be confused most of the time. Yes. Um, 
But there's also like a million people who have done that with you yes. and have written about it. And there's, there's opportunity there. That and how do you connect with that? sea of voices and people yeah. and story and it's almost like there's experience. so much that it's like ah, i don't want to yeah how could i ever yeah and i think in graduate school you watch students wrestle with that because there's either this it seems like one of the classic all or nothing i'm either going to not interact with research really at all unless i have to and so go the clinical route yeah just application so sitting in the room not necessarily which I think you and I would say you're still doing theory-based research application and research. Yeah. But you're okay. still doing a case study. You sure. just don't know okay. you are. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. Um, so just focusing on the clinical or you go into become a research PhD or PsyD or some type yeah. of even just, you know, interested human that's wanting, wanting to understand what has been said but you're not, it's impossible to be outside of the world of research and theory. Mm. And I think that's really the, the place to start when talking about why we as humans need to be listening to what has been said before us, because it's shaping our brain systems, it's shaping how we're understanding information, it's shaping the spaces we're having conversations in, mm. and it's shaping the future of our field. So in some way, like find the space that you can just start to baby step your way into the conversation that to me is one of the reasons why our field will both be successful and have its shortcomings. Yeah, struggle. Yeah. yeah. Which I love like the idea of today's conversation. We don't have any papers in front of us. We don't have any computers. It's the first time in this whole podcast we've done this. Yes. Yeah. Just had a conversation. Yeah. But I I wanted to to before we jump into the next series of articles, give some kind of space for us to just discuss why we're making the decision we're making yeah. because what we're also choosing to do is integrate not a new voice to the field of science, but a new voice to the field of mental and clinical health, mm -hmm. the voices in neuroscience. We're going to kind of integrate that. Cause I feel like when we were at the end of our last series of looking at what is evidence-based therapy, yeah, what are evidence-based practices, the shortcomings, the positives, the, the confusion on language, like all of the complexities of what is an EBT. There was this part of me that was always missing of like, you know, there's ways to understand some of this, but it's not in the world of behavioral observation and clinical counseling studies. Yeah. 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 It's in understanding maybe what's more going on underneath the skin. Yeah. Which is neuroscientific inquiry. Why do you, this is a large very large conversations that we're just going to flutter over. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So why do you think that is hmm. just as a, because we are both highly educated individuals, been in academia for all of our lives mm -hmm. basically. And it doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. Nah. So as, as a member of that culture, why would you say, what would be your best guess to say why that is that there is this bifurcation of, of knowledge and sort of mm. this grasping so tightly your quote unquote, you know, uh, what is it? Um, your scope of practice. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. As you're saying that, like the, I had so many virtual others that show up <laughs> and like when we do trainings and when we start getting into like, Here's how, here's one way you can understand what 
could be happening I in, love that in this session. One way, what could be. <laughs> yeah. that, like, it's not definite, it's not which certain. is something that I want to talk about yeah. is a misconception with neuroscience and this idea that neuroscientists have the answer to everything. Yeah. It's false. But I had a lot of <laughs> virtual others that came into my mind of like the question so often is, okay, yeah, but like, why does this matter? Yeah. Why does this, where does this apply? What do I do with this knowledge, understanding? Why does it matter? And I think the fields of academia and clinical application have accepted a term of like, I will be this way and you will be that way. I will do the deep dive into the neuroscience, which like in all respects takes that amount of time, you know, to even get to the place where we developed something like a functional magnetic resonance imaging mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, machine. Yeah. Or some of the new techniques of brain scanning and brain stimulation that are in With infrared and depth oriented, yeah. Yeah, like it takes a lifetime to just do that. So like I get why there's this chasm, but I think the fields have sort of, they're in this wrestling of, I mean, you you see it everywhere on like PESI or Hmm. these trainings for counselors and therapists where it's becoming more readily open to like, hey, this stuff can help. But I think for a long time it has felt like, well, that doesn't, that literally changes nothing I do in the room. Right. Um, so somebody has to now come along and bridge that gap. Yes. So it, it can <laughs> in certain ways, which is, I think, so much of our passion is helping people understand, like, this isn't knowledge just by itself. It could be. Yeah. But it can be understanding. Yeah. It can help you not just, like, say, I know everything about my client. It can help you say, I understand what it's like to be my client in this moment. This is why I love this conversation already. This is amazing. But why I feel I want to go slow here because mm. I think we are you and I in particular are often misunderstood in this space. Because mm. what you just said, that it doesn't have to just be knowledge. What does that mean? Mm. Because that to me, when I hear you say that, I'm like, yeah, knowledge isn't the answer. It never was. Mm-hmm. But that's not, I don't know if that's understood in the vernacular. Yeah. Which I colloquially. Yeah. And I love this discussion because I, you know, I felt it when I first started feeling all of the good feelings of like, <laughs> oh my God, this stuff is explaining this things. Slaps. This is how we would say neuroscience <laughs> slaps. <laughs> Which is a good, yeah, which is uh, (laughs) what the kids would say these days. Um, While we were playing ping pong. Yes, yeah. yeah. While we were engaged in our playful childlike states after (laughs) three hours of intense graduate class. slaps. Yeah. Yeah. But then the temptation was to say the cure for anyone's ailment is the dissemination of knowledge. knowledge. Yeah. I need to tell you more about your brain. Therefore, you'll be healed. Yeah. And healing is in the knowledge. And I think that, and I know that I've sat in sessions where my psychoeducation has turned into psycho manipulation. Knowledge transmission. Yeah. Through, yeah. Hey, I know more about the brain than you do. So I'm going to tell you about your experience and it things should change. Right. Because now you know that that's just an overactive amygdala. So anytime out in the world, you can just say overactive amygdala and get better. Right. That is like a real temptation. But then there's also the other side of like... Which that way of applying 
neuroscience to human behavior has been heavily critiqued Mm. and created such a disparity between disciplines to where you'll go to some conference that's mental health based. And you'll hear these conversations about brains from people who don't know a lot about brains. And then conversations about counseling from people that don't know a lot about counseling. And so it's like this this strange disconnect where we're on other sides of the presentation hall, not talking to each other, but accusing one another of being out of their scope of practice. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the, that cannot be the way yeah. that we progress as a field of human science. relational science. Yeah. We can't be, be that anymore. If that's yeah. in our, if that's in the space somewhere, we need to figure out a safe enough language to name it so that we can transcend above it and connect. Yeah. I love the idea of feeling safe enough to name it, yes. to name that dynamic. Because I think a lot of times what what I have felt in different spaces of interacting with other clinicians or other people who um, you know maybe aren't a clinician, but they're interested in human health and growth and development and also like want to know stuff about science and they are having a conversation with me, I, I feel this like tension of you can almost see and, and it's like you're listening to a different language sometimes. Like if mm-hmm. someone started talking French here, yeah. at some point I would just start like dissociating because yeah. I don't really know it. Or if I went to our intern and said periaqueductal gray. <laughs> yeah. That has no meaning. <laughs> None whatsoever. Couldn't that even, is obscure like, speech. Yeah. And and I I feel like that's where rather than like caricaturing the two fields of well, that's just like fancy language. It has no bearing on what I'm right. doing in the room. Yes. Or, well, you're just clinical. You yeah. like yeah. you don't actually know what's happening. Rather than going to those sort of strategies as fields, adopting the strategy of what safe language can we both use yeah. that lets us just name like, hey, I dissociated because you're saying a bunch of it's so strange to me different words, or like. Hey, there's something that really matters bio, neurobiologically. Mm-hmm. And I think in therapy, maybe you're missing it. Like, right. And that to me is the space that we need to cultivate as a field to where we can both agree that it matters. If that's the case, then we can, we can go back and forth with each other on the patients needed by both parties to translate and mm-hmm. to find a new language that can connect all of these dots from the neuroanatomy and the biological process of complex systems to the emergent relational mind between two humans. Mm-hmm. These things are intimately interrelated. But if you only use the dictionary of one to try and describe the other, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be offended and objectified and you're going to feel disinterested. Of course yeah. you are. Just in the same way as if you try to use your dictionary to talk to the other person. Yeah. It's not going to work. You're going to get frustrated and argue and then leave. Like mm-hmm. That's what happens when two people can't be patient enough to translate between languages. But we have to agree that the relationship matters. Yeah. That's what will give us the patience to the, the sort of like long-suffering nature of, okay, I hear you saying one thing and I don't understand it mm-hmm. and I want to. How do I apply an analogy or can you apply it to this instance in my clinical practice or vice versa? Yes. And be able to actually come to a consensus on the language. Yeah. That statement that you said of like the the relationship matters feels so close to the heart of 
why we're maybe shifting into a different quote unquote type of research, yeah. which is synthesizing and also oriented more towards neuro neuroscientific inquiry or research. Um, not so much random control trials of um, yeah. uh, interventions. Quantitative. Look at analysis. the manipulation of behavioral and emotional health. We're doing that not because it's like a, here's all the problems with EBTs and theories of counseling and the white horse is coming in in neuroscience and da -da -da. it's going to save the day. Yeah. Because that's not true. Right. There is, is no, there is no that. Yeah. That will never happen. There's no white horse. <laughs> Damn. I feel like we may have just like fractured or splintered <laughs> the like universe. the universe just a little bit like. There is no white horse. Not, it will never happen. Yeah. Nope. The, and yeah, I love even to go back to the idea of like knowledge, like mm -hmm. to bring neuroscience into the discussion isn't to say like, here's a knowledge that is the cure. It's to say, here's a way of understanding yeah. that is uses different language, has different, different paradigms to depth. Yes. That's different depths. Yeah. 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 There's so many times where I'm reading neuroscience and it's like holy crap i did i needed that language yeah, now I to see. understand yeah yeah oh yeah something as simple as like the fact that like uh ventral and dorsal share the same branch or share the same kind of branches of the parasympathetic yeah, nervous that's system huge. that's huge to understand how <laughs> somebody could be functionally dissociating and look like they're totally fine Underneath the surface, they're fragmented. Completely shut off to themselves. Yes, totally dissociated. Yeah. How do you understand that without the language? Yes. Yeah. And it's like, yes. But then there's also times where I'm reading neuroscience or body science and it's just like. <laughs> it's off. Nope. Like yeah. what you're saying does not fit at all with the client I just had. Yeah. Like something feels very off or limiting or like it doesn't go as deep as like the nuances of me just sitting with my client and processing through a paradigm of psychoanalytic right. or even cognitive behavioral or yeah hearing about a fight with their yeah. relationship like their partner or whatever yes yeah 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 and holding the like the relationship matters not for knowledge sake but for understanding, understanding. um yeah yeah so then just to give i want to give like a little teaser of where we're kind of going yeah with some articles coming up because we just came off of the triune brain where we we threw out some concepts that I think like maybe people were like, oh, this is interesting. I didn't know about this. We threw out things like modularity in the brain and the idea of systems versus circuits. Systems uh, versus circuits versus modules. Yeah. Yes. yes. And the idea of like, well, and pop science and psych has really jumped on to like the two of like the hippocampus is where all memory is stored and the amygdala is where all fear is. And we said something kind of last week of like the authors were saying there's no such thing as a fear circuit. We were saying that feels erroneous. Mm -hmm. And at the same time that the circuit is not just like you can't just like pinpoint it, take it out and people no are healed. Yeah. No more fear. Yep. <laughs> no, the brain is incredibly adaptive and reciprocally right. interactive. So then the articles that we're jumping into are hoping to give some nuance to that. Yeah, so let's let's zoom out a bit because we're talking about something right now that you and I have 
we've talked about since the beginning of our relationship. So it's got quite a few years I and love, hours. And this is going to be a new dynamic of EBT is I'm going to, I'm going to go too far too quick. And you're going to say, you know what? Hey, let's zoom out just real fast. Just for a second. Just for a second. <laughs> but I feel like we do that together. Oh like yeah. We, we yeah, like, yeah. Cause I definitely will. Yeah. Oh yeah. And will, I'll, I'll pull you out too. Yeah. I will run yeah. deep into the hole. Um, but why we're like 30 something episodes in, I think mm-hmm. somewhere, in there. Somewhere, somewhere about that. Neuroscience has been at the base of our relationship since the very beginning. Why now for this type of conversation? And what do we mean when we talk about neuroscience? Mm. Yeah. So there's a couple questions there. Cause like the idea of why we didn't just start there. Um, like, I feel like we were more oriented towards, um, the relationship, like understanding that if we're going to do evidence-based therapy or even talk about that as a concept, it has to be situated in an understanding of the relational dynamics of health, Mm. that an evidence-based therapy that is going towards health has to be oriented towards a relational dynamic. Mm-hmm. So then kind of in processing just some some seminal small works here and there, seminal small work that's contradictory, but like you I'm could open to the nuance. I like Yeah, you could yeah. make like a whole podcast just out of that. Yeah. Relational sciences and the importance of health. Yep. But then we went from there into well what is EBT? What's this construct? What are like the what are people saying about it? And it got kind of clear and muddy at the same time. Yeah, which is sort of the intention of why we launched the podcast at all. Totally to get to that. So we yeah. situated in a relationship. We add some nuance to what is an evidence based therapy if it is situated in a relationship. Yeah, and that even some of the dynamics at which we're studying EBTs is forgetting where we started our kind of lit review or story with relational sciences. So then it feels important if, if we're going to talk about relationships and then we're going to talk about the moneyness of evidence-based therapies. Yeah. The next logical step in my mind is how do we make sense of when therapy doesn't work the way we thought it would? (laughs) Like what about the, the 30% who don't get better? Who are labeled depending on treatment resistant yeah. yeah treatment resistant the 30 to 80 um, percent yeah 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 <laughs> very much depends yeah um like how do we make sense of those people because they're not just numbers there's humans with lives that they live 24 hours a day yeah so they're going how do i make sense of that from an evidence-based therapy perspective but then yeah. also from a relational sciences perspective I love that last article we did um, with the, analyzing the child, the early relational trauma and oh, yeah, the case with, study. Oh, uh, yeah, Bowlby's yes. phases. Yeah, yeah. Um, because that like illuminated so much that you, you can see a human do something and write a story about what that means. If I see a child protesting mm-hmm. their, the loss of their mother, I can write a negative story about that. But from of relational sciences and if I included some neuroscience in there, I could get down to understanding that that is a 
psychobiological necessity <laughs> for their system to release emotional energy in a relationship to then co-regulate and process anew. <laughs> I would miss that if I was just seeing the those as symptoms yeah. and seeking to treat those, which is where the, we talked about the evidence-based treatments get muddy. Yes. What is the symptom? What's not? Yeah. How are we tracking that? Which this is, and I, I wonder if this is, if this will resonate with you, but the way that I'm understanding um, neuroscience and why we talk about it in the way that we do is that it, it is the accepted mode of inquiry into something below the flesh. Like take neuroscience out of the picture for a second. Hmm. Just looking at the behavioral connotations of a relational process that involves learning. Okay, so that's how humans develop. Okay, if you're there, the only reason I'm talking about neuroscience is because that's the way the field has shaped its language to say, yeah, but I want to look at what is making up mm -hmm. the activation that creates the relational process. I don't care about neuroscience just because like, it's a religion that I'm committed to. I'm talking about neuroscience because that's what the field has organized its library to display this amazing inquiry that moves into the actual animation of the organism. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like, oh, yeah. I don't care about neuroscience because it's... Trendy? Yeah, or, or that it's even... I struggle sometimes to translate this. The only reason I, t I, I talk about neuroscience is because that's what words matter in looking at animation mm. biology. Yeah. Like that's what you call it. Yeah. <laughs> like that's what we all sometime collectively decided to start talking about. Okay, here's, yeah. here's actually how this cell functions with this other cell theoretically and we're setting up now hypotheses to test with better tools yeah. but we think that this process of um, you know grieving the mother's absence or their loss we mm -hmm. think that that involves this series of neurobiological processes mm -hmm. so let's test it let's see yeah that's what i care about that connection if you're looking at above the the words don't get lost in the words just the connection between I'm seeing a behavior and I think that it might be created. It's self-emergent from deeper, something more primal activation. Yeah. Which is, as humans, that's not a new inquiry for us. Right. So not to label it neuroscience and to look at the the material biological like functioning yes relatively like, relatively yeah. but we've been trying to answer this question, of question how do i make sense of what's behind the behavior yes in philosophy and religion spirituality anthropology, anthropology mm -hmm. sociology like all all are seeking different ways to answer the question how do i make sense of what i'm seeing even though what I'm seeing, I know, has more to it. Right. It's not just the thing in and of itself. Yeah. That's, to me, the posture of, like, why we talk about neuroscience. Again, mm -hmm. it's not because it's just something that we decided to give importance to. It's because that's what gives us the language to be able to make that inquiry next step. Mm -hmm. 
to go into, oh, this relationship is actually made up of many relationships Mm -hmm. between cell and experience. Yeah. Let's talk about that. And there's actually all these ways of organizing that conversation. Mm -hmm. Like, that's amazing. Let's talk about that. Yeah. And so when we're, we're talking about brain systems or neuroanatomy or neurobiology or neuroscience or whatever, all of those have very intricate layers of meaning. What we're doing as therapists talking about these things is that these are ways we can now begin to understand more, understand more why a behavior makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Know it first. Mm -hmm. Know that cells interact and create systems and systems interact to create organisms. And like knowing all of that is great, but then like there is this like, shift into understanding yeah i like okay yeah i know the function of certain like i know one that i feel like i'm i always bring up and also is like a caricature of like i know the seven affective circuits of affective neuroscience i get that i know those but what i'm seeking in therapy is how does that knowledge inform a deeper understanding and i i think the thing that i encounter the most with neuroscience is that it it's incredibly de-shaming. Mm-hmm. We have a ton of shameful stories. Normalizing yeah. inherently de-shaming. Yeah. We have a we have a ton of shameful or shame-oriented stories around our the reasons we do things, the behaviors we do, the interactions we have. Like, you know, I don't know. My I, I could easily write a shame-oriented story around the fact that I just forgot something that I should have known, but then. Like what feels so right to me is neuroscience provides a language and a framework to say, you know, there may be a reason for that. That's not like you're a bad thing that you just like you just engage in a shortcoming or you just showed your cards is like there's a part of you that is malfunctioning. It's like actually maybe it's functioning really well because it was shaped by yeah a relational process yeah in a different direction too. exactly yeah and <laughs> that to me is the the space that if you can understand that. There is no such thing as a bad thing. And I know that's controversial and really hard to look at the extremes of our tabooed mm-hmm. identifications, murder, abuse, like all of those things are terrible yeah. actions. But the spaces they come from mm-hmm. are relational processes that have been shaped over time. Mm-hmm. And so if you if you understand the neuroscientific posture, you're seeing these things not with the not with the the need to organize them into good and bad or right and wrong, but just a space that inherently is. And so let's try and and understand it more deeply. Yeah. yeah. But and, and that's a space that I, I'll sit with clients and say, this is going to be this being the relationship between them and not them and me, is going to be a really hard thing for you because you have narratives that say that it's your fault and you're bad. And I don't believe in that. Hmm. and i just like sit with it there mm-hmm. i don't believe you that it's your fault or you're bad and i'm so down to go into all of these conversations that you think that that's the case yeah totally yeah. but i don't believe it yeah which even there like oh we're butting up against oh man so many interesting constructs uh in other fields yeah like other ways of understanding the why behind the what Yep. Or the how behind the what as well. Things like religion and spirituality, 
even sociological and cultural systems of thought. Like, yeah. There are a lot of zones where that offer explanations that, for the thing they're coming to talk to me about. Yeah. 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 That's a, and I am interested in how you feel of, of me using that language of like your faith in that space. I call it. Yeah. Faith. Yeah. To say like, I, based on the, the world of knowledge that I'm steeped in, as tea every day yes yeah. as a leaf myself as a leaf myself what i'm steeped in is telling me that you're not a bad person that's a construct that i just don't believe in yeah butts up against a lot of yes even even um like therapeutic mm-hmm. theories yeah um, have some flavors of oh, that's not true like those those behaviors are maladaptive and yeah. that part of them is bad yeah um I think the burden of proof is easy for me to to hit back across the net when, okay, well, you now have to split hairs with that person talking about what makes up a bad behavior versus a bad person. Good luck with that, number one, because you're making arbitrary distinctions. Hmm. To one person, if you believe in badness at all, you're talking now about, well, no, that was the behavior, not the person. You see shame and guilt research fall apart on this issue mm-hmm. because it's so difficult to actually see that distinction. You can measure it, quote unquote, but that's because you set up the measure to yeah. only register a response appropriately for one construct and not the other. Yeah. You made that distinction. Yeah. That's not an accurate reading of what's the difference between guilt and shame. When you teach somebody the distinction and then measure their accuracy of that distinction, that's not true research. Okay. Like that's you. Like you're yeah, Did great. Teach well. You, you just yeah, you just taught them a construct. That's yeah. good. Um that was a soapbox, I think. But no, I'm there for, for me, it. yeah, for me, it is a faith, very much so. And I think people call it humanism or universalism or whatever. But to me, I think, call it whatever you want. I believe that humans are inherently good. Mm. That doesn't necessitate the existence of bad. Mm. Yeah. It's, non, it's non-linear, non-dual. <laughs> like, yeah. it, I believe that they are good because their, their cells are built to live. Mm. That is good. Yeah. That is life. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And until you're dead, you're good. Yeah, which I think, like, I'm so stoked for, like, the series that we're about to do because at the end we have, we're going to review a article from Dan Siegel. Mm. I feel like anytime we're talking about good, bad, like, I hear him as, I will sometimes tell the story of, like, literally sitting on the floor at yeah. his feet at a conference <laughs> yeah. in Nashville one time. And I just remember him saying, like, you know, we could get away from these categories of good and bad if we just started using health and unhealth. Yes. Which is just like a much more compassionate way of looking at humans and saying like, oh my God, I think your system is feeling the effects of unhealth. Mm-hmm. And really what he's meaning there is disintegration. Yes. And, and that's again, I think what some people misunderstand is that, oh, he's just changing the words. He means the same things, good and bad. He's just changing the words. That's not true. No. That's not like, yeah, that's what I get so stoked on with, with Siegel stuff is that it, it's not a simple replacement of the words. Like yeah. unhealth is still bad. Yeah, it's not synonym. Yeah, no. Yeah. It, that's not true. Yeah. 
Yes. Unhealth has a level of disintegration but that is still, greater than the level of integration correct. in the it system. It will lead to less health in the future than health would. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so then people stop becoming good or bad. They become um, uh, organisms that are feeling the effects of, yeah. am I allowed to be integrated or not? Yes. And my system will unconsciously choose to, for a time, go into what is quote-unquote unhealthy. We talked about this in the last one. Allostatic. Yep, I was just thinking about that. In order to get back to homeostatic stability and constancy. Um, But if that's not afforded to me, if I have to keep my allostatic constancy, then I'm going to adjust. And I'm going to go into like holding on a level of unhealth. Right. Um, And then, yeah, that will change my behaviors in the world. And that will lead to psychiatric quote-unquote disorders and because that's what those systems have been set up to measure and label yes yeah that's just a label of the yeah Yeah. so like yeah if we're looking at why neuroscience then which is like kind of back to the second question so sick really like to me we were looking at the complexities especially with several of those articles of you know part of this is just studying these constructs exactly of depression anxiety ocd adhd i don't think you can slow down your language enough to make okay. it really clear because that what you just said is i mean yeah it it all is constructs that's another thing that's just like i don't think people understand <laughs> depression is a construct it's made up mm. It, it, and even if you were to trace down its neurochemical origins and its relational antecedents. Which we're going to talk about. Which we're going to talk about. <laughs> and its antecedents. Those are made up. Yeah. <laughs> we spotted them, organized them, and labeled them. Okay? And, and like, our labels have been wrong. And changed over time. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. That's what's just so absurd to me. If anyone tries to find the end in a quote-unquote labeled distinction. Hmm. Who made those labels up? And I'm not just like being that kid in class. It's just like, <laughs> that's an opinion. Like, like, Sitting in the back corner. Yeah, just like staring at the window. The whole thing. Like, put up like sunglasses on in class. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that's, but I, the reason I'm bringing that up is that we have to understand that our entire perspective on reality is made up. It's neat at times in how we've organized it and agreed on the distinctions, Mm -hmm. but it's inherently made up. Yeah. So what we're doing in talking about neuroscience is starting to play with some of that language to apply it to a systems-oriented understanding of human behavior. Mm -hmm. So just as you said, like to start playing with these constructs and taking them apart, what is depression? If we look at it from a neuroscientific or neurobiological yeah. or even greater interpersonal neurobiological perspective. Yeah. Just like what we did last uh, article where we said at different levels of perception, there's different levels of clarity. Yes. Like what if I dove into depression and took a different level of perception that is granular? Then just looked at depressed mood as identified or you know uh, justified by lack of motivation, loss of, you know, uh, any energy, difficulty getting out of bed, feeling worse more days than not, like mm-hmm. these symptomatic clarifications of this disorder. What if we look at it deeper than that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, something as easy as that is like, 
my brain goes to a conversation I've had with several clients of like, what if you actually need your, your Sunday depression? Because your Sunday depression is actually reminding you that you're overworked mm-hmm. five days of the week and that you're in some way feeling like you have to. What do you feel like the response is to that? Well, you know, usually it, it's a conversation that goes on for a little longer and it has to because the, you're the initial gut. their organization of reality yeah. when you talk that way. Yes. Yeah. Which, again, I'm, I'm from Simply the fundamental organ, organization of mind that is oriented towards, like, I don't think that's a bad thing. Right. Like, it, maybe it's feeling it sucks and I'm going to empathize with that. And also there's like a level of unhealth there. But you're In not the problem. Exactly. Like yeah. that we can learn more about your experience yeah. of the world. And I can hear virtual others coming in about like, well, how do you, are you just telling everybody to punt on responsibility for their actions and behaviors? And because it's like, well, if you're saying. If you could see my face. I know, I know. <laughs> but that's what will come up is like, yeah. so are you saying like the humanists, they think that everything was their parents' fault and that nothing is on them. That is complete. Like, please bring that up in comments to this episode and later episodes if you think yeah. that's true. Yeah. Because both, like, we would love to have a conversation yeah. about that. Easy example. I talk to people about responsibility has been, like, a totally obliterated construct. Yeah. Where, like, responsibility is now a moral obligation to do right and wrong. Whereas, like, etymologically, just break it up. Response, Response ability. Okay. Response, you have the ability to respond. Hyphen ability. Yeah. So, like, my understanding of neuroscience and also the integration of relation, relational sciences is helping people to learn that they can respond differently. I actually want them to take responsibility, but I don't want that responsibility to be based on their bad. Yes. I want that responsibility to be based on you have neurobiological systems that can give you the energy and resources you need, both internally and externally. Yeah. But your system isn't tapping into those because it doesn't feel safe enough to. Right. Let's look at the neurobiology of addictions. Okay. Yeah. This is a space where so much energy and millions of dollars have been allocated to stop addictions because they obliterate families, they destroy lives, and they, you know, do all of these terrible things. That I totally resonate with the the feeling behind it coming from a family of people that have died from addictions like i understand the weight Mm. of addictions it is not a thing in and of itself addictions don't kill people the neurobiological process that created the addiction and isolated it as its only coping mechanism only resource kills people yeah that's the thing the addiction is not the problem. The addiction is a manifestation of the problem. And then there's this limbo space where you are now choosing that over other resources. Yeah, That's what leads so far down the track of unhealth that you cease to animate your being with life anymore. Yeah, You die. Yeah. That's the, that's the space where if we're taking a neuroscientific approach to understanding addictions, we need to be talking about affective templates and our way of modulating and regulating dysregulated or disintegrated affective systems mm-hmm. because it's somewhere along the road their system picked up on this substance does this love that yeah let's store that away oh and then and by go, does this what you're 
saying at the base is regulate energy efficiently. Yes, it, it or gives me the perspective or perception that it's happening. Yeah, which and efficiently is time stamped and exactly. You have to do all these nuances, yes, but yes, yes, yeah. yes. They they are experiencing a lesser degree of distress than they were prior to use. Mm-hmm. That from a biological organism perspective, evolutionarily, will be potentiated. That connection. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like you just found a instantaneous physiological regulator. A way to keep going. Are you joking? Yeah. Like, yes, use that. I don't care if other people have a problem with it. Use it. Mm-hmm. They're not you. Yeah. Like, yeah, okay, it's costing you your kids' lives, but you're surviving. You're going down the road. Mm-hmm. And it's squaring this deal that we made with ourselves that we're never going to look at our pain. Yeah. Unconscious. Deal. Too. Deal. Yeah. Deal. Mm. That's where there is no such thing as a bad person. Mm. I don't care like what it is. Like throw anything at me. <laughs> like, yeah. It doesn't exist. Because if we have that belief, there's going to be power dynamics, there's going to be exploitation, and there's going to be oppression. Mm. Yeah. Which is what's happening in mental health. It always has. Yeah. Yeah. Some people get treatment. Mm. Other people get placebo or... Nothing. Treatment resistant. Yeah. Or I had a shit therapist. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think to me, grounding the the space that we're in around this is like I feel like the the original kind of couple sentences we went back and forth on and just organizing this episode was just like we're going to introduce neuroscience as this beautiful avenue of understanding. And at the same time, do what we've done with everything, which is to say, not a silver bullet, has a lot of holes and will not answer all your problems. It's it's imperfect. It's unfit to answer all of your problems. Yeah. Like it literally, it's apples to donkeys. I said yeah. that in a meeting sometime before. <laughs> it's amazing. Like it's, it, it, it does not square. Yeah. 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 Using a tire iron to like iron a shirt. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. Mm-mm. Yeah. I love this thing that you've said in past sessions of like, and this is a paraphrase because it's connected to a lot of different things, but it's imperfect, but it's like the best we have. <laughs> it's not going to solve, all, it's not going to answer all the questions, but it's worth yes, paying attention to. Yeah. It matters. The yeah. relationship matters. Yeah. That's the thing. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. So what do you think of this? As we're kind of closing down, like, where are we going? We're midway through a season right now. We just came off of Adaptive or Triune. Yeah. And I'm super stoked to get into neuroscience. And I think that that is a space that we are often misunderstood in Mm. and go through this series of objectifications subconsciously to where that whole thing plays out, where somebody says, this doesn't matter to me, and so I'm not listening anymore. Let me know when you get back to clinical application. Or vice versa, somebody will say, like, this is all I want to talk about. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <And> not, <laughs> yes. not the clinical application yeah, side. Very much. So we've, you know, we're in those spaces a lot. But I think as we turn our attention to this this portion of the season, we have an opportunity to introduce people to neuroscience our way. Mm. And that excites me very much. Very much. Yeah. yeah. It's not, what a, you not a silver bullet, but so worth our time yeah yeah 
yeah, I think, well, I'm curious what your felt sense is around that question and just like the idea of where we're coming up into and, mm-hmm. and where listeners who are curious about EBTs and neuroscience doesn't tell us what to do at all. Right. That's not the point of it. Yeah. So then why, why, why talk about something about that doesn't tell me what to do? Yeah. I think for that question in particular, there's so much, like so many ways in, in my mind with the neuroinformed counseling movement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this world of research has been building and counselors and people who have no background in neuroscience at all are starting to talk about its implications. So I think there's one justification for why we need to talk about it and why we do talk about it in our trainings and help people make sense of it. I think another piece is that just from a from a conceptual standpoint of understanding reality as a thoughtful human, mm. neuroscience offers a very powerful lens and magnifying glass and laser and x-ray and yeah. <laughs> you know just an amazing um, idea. Mm-hmm. And we need to talk about how to take care of that tool and how to use it appropriately, how to store it appropriately and when not to use it. Yeah. Because it's really easy to get so excited with it that we just use it on everything. And you know, th- that comes at great detriment. But I think what my deepest desire in talking about neuroscience to our audience and just between you and I is that it would be a space for a connection on the things that really, really matter, which is health. Yeah. Health yeah. for all. Yeah. And neuroscience actually has implications for anthropology, for political science, mm-hmm. for engineering. Architecture. For, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Something exactly like architecture. Where, yes. 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 The way we design spaces, neuroscience matters and can help inform some of these, some of these larger efforts that in 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 absence of neuroscience, we would be less thoughtful with, hmm. yeah. less considerate with. Yeah. Um, and if we just have these lenses to see how a person is experiencing a space in relational context neurobiologically, I think then we really have the power to offer a very uh, individualized and contextualized invitation to an experience that would lead to more health than unhealth. Mm-hmm. Without it, I think we're swimming upstream. Yeah. In yeah. Niagara Falls. <laughs> like, good luck. Good luck with that. Yeah. 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 I love the idea that has felt kind of like we didn't set out for it, but we found maybe a reframe of what is an evidence based therapy is a seeking greater levels of health, mm-hmm. not successful therapy not as careful be as possible Mm -hmm. not timidly not Mm. carefully but careful yeah e as possible yeah um seeking greater levels of health and integration and relational complexity yeah Mm -hmm. because like we've reviewed in past articles i don't know if you've ever seen a client like every client of yours goes through therapy seamlessly and there's no major life events that happen yeah screw the progress up yeah um but therapy is usually not a linear process ever 
a linear process. Yeah, I was going to say. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think conceptually I could hold out for a space in which it would be, but that'd yeah. be really interesting. That'd be conceptual. Like, we'd yeah, be yeah. talking about that's a series of enactments going on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it appears yeah. to be. I yeah. had a client tell me that with their last therapist, they had just, um, they had looked up the treatments that the person claimed to be using and started to change how they showed up in the room so that they could graduate earlier. Hmm. How do you understand that? That's the question. That's the question. You because do it they, from relational sciences. They got the stamp of approval from their therapist, and that therapist even wrote them a letter of recommendation to a court based on that person's ability to do what they did. Mm-hmm. Nailed it. Strategy. Mm-hmm. Very complex system. Bad client or really adaptive system. Yes. Accomplish its goal. Yeah. Yeah. How do you understand that? Talk about it and yeah. process it. Neuroscience gives us great language. Without shame. Yeah. That's the whole thing. Yeah. Like that's very, if you look at it from the lenses of guilt and shame, that's a big problem for them to be telling me that because now why should I believe that they're showing up authentically with me any of the time? Mm. Why, why wouldn't I think that you're just lying to me? Mm-hmm. Even in telling this story. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a worldview thing. I don't care if you're lying. You have good reason to lie. Yeah, I want to talk about that. I'd love to just talk about what is coming up for you as you choose between more truth or less truth. Yeah. Why? Let's just talk about it. Don't be offended by someone's <laughs> human process. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's hurtful to be lied yeah. to. You lie to people too. I don't know if you knew that. You misrepresent and oh my God. change things. You don't tell the whole truth. Yeah, that's a white lie. Okay, so you have a distinction. Mm, interesting. interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's mental complexity, yes. which we can talk about neuroscientifically. At different levels of perception. That's right. Yeah. So I'm stoked. Yeah. Uh, if you're wondering what articles you're listening to this and like, I want to jump in, read along. We're going to do a series of four articles by Koziel et al. 2014. Um, 2014. It's on ResearchGate. If you just type in Koziel, K-O-Z-I-O-L, and then large brain, uh, large structure, large scale brain, large systems. scale brain systems. Um, There's a four part series. Yeah, four part series, all from 2014. Research game, open access, super Find good. It. Then we're gonna look at some Dan Siegel and others and uh, party. That's right, <laughs> and party. And That's party. Right. Understand how the heck do we make sense of why healing relationships are what heal us as humans, right. and yet we deny them even in therapy when we pay for it. How do we make sense of That's that? That's right. And most of all, stay curious. Stay curious, friends. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you stay curious and create community around discussing the research that matters most to clinicians and researchers. If you're curious to learn more about something you heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming case conceptualization trainings and community events. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes. Leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching the Evidence-Based Therapist Podcast. This podcast is a project of Beyond Healing Media a media creation group committed to creativity, 
community, and embracing the beauty of being human. If you like this podcast, you might also like the other podcasts of Beyond Healing Media. Notice That is an EMDR podcast hosted by Andrea-approved consultants and trainers who use EMDR in their practice. Beyond Trauma is an educational podcast on the journey of trauma therapy and what it means to be humans who have been hurt but are learning to recover and grow, living the life we all want of safety and connection. The Burnout Educator is an interview-style podcast that invites stories from people across the spectrum of the educational system and seeks to see the human inside the role they play. It is our desire that you see parts of your story and those around you in the stories you hear.